Blog Talk Radio. The new theater of the mind. The Bruce Collins Show. Welcome back to the Bruce Collins Show. We're very glad to have you join us. I'm Bruce Collins. Joining me tonight after a six-year hiatus is Eddie Snipes. Of course, the six-year hiatus is my fault. I've been away from podcasting and doing radio. But uh, Eddie Snipes has served as a pastor two years as president of the Christian Authors Guild, nominated for Georgia Author of the Year, and founder of Exchange Life Discipleship, which can be found at exchangelife.com. Eddie Snipes, welcome to the Bruce Collins Show. Hey, Bruce. It's good to talk to you again. Well, it's great to talk to you. And uh, I know you're in Georgia. How's the weather there? Uh, it's a little cooler than, than what we like here in Georgia, but it's not too bad. Excellent. We're having rain this weekend. Not my choice. Yes, always. <laughs> we do we do need it. We, we've been having a drought in recent years. Now, before we talk about your latest book, Weakness is Your Greatest Strength, what, and of course, the, it's Weakness is Your Greatest Strength, Enter the Call to Live in the Transformed Life, again by Eddie Snipes. What can people find at your website, exchangelife.com? Uh, well, at the, at the website, it's mostly focused on uh, teachings, um, uh, some of the uh, conferences I've done, I have recorded and put on there, and I have links to any YouTube broadcasts that I've done. Uh, and I uh, try to get some more teaching stuff on there. So it's, it's just a variety of things, ministry-related. Excellent. Now, I know you're in Georgia, so I was going to start the, my next question by saying we just had a contentious political battle, but it's kind of ongoing in Georgia, I think. But uh, yeah. I suspect that things are going to be similar in a couple of years, 2024, if not worse, and probably actually 2023 will be the buildup for that. And I'm guilty, you know, on social media like Twitter and, and Facebook of catching mm-hmm. myself getting involved in politics and social media. So I admit, I admit that it's difficult for me sometimes to kind of um, step back from that and look at the bigger picture. Um, as a Christian, how do you think politics should be approached? Well, I'm kind of with you. In the past, I've really been overly political, but in, as I've grown spiritually, I begin to realize that ultimately the Bible says, and Jesus himself said, that we are ambassadors for Christ and an ambassador is someone who tries to do their kingdom's influence in the different culture. So politics, even though uh, I believe Christians influence politics by their lifestyle and by uh, teaching others to grow in their faith, um, politics is not our main focus. And I think a lot of times politics can take the place of religion, and, and each side thinks that they're doing God's work. But in, in Romans it says that uh, – all authority is appointed by God, so I think a Christian should have that as their main focus, and it shouldn't be a divisive issue. Um, as a pastor, you know, when I when I pastored Hollydale, that came up a lot, and you can alienate one side or the other, but you think you're doing God a service, but you're really not. The main focus is the gospel, not uh, who gets voted into office. Plus, our calling is to pray for our leaders, and I think if we spend more time praying for our leaders than criticizing them, we might see God working more often. Indeed, yes. 
So um, we wanted to talk about your book tonight, Weakness is Your Greatest Strength. And again, it's by Eddie Snipes. Well, one thing I wanted to point out that I, I didn't um, plan for, but I just wanted to let the audience know that obviously you're not trying to become a millionaire off of these books. Uh, this book is $6 on Amazon. So w- what's with the price? Well, obviously the goal is to do ministry, and the ebook is a, is 99 cents. So I, I just try to make it as low as possible so that people can uh, can read it and afford it and not become price not become a barrier. Yeah. Again, the book is "Weakness Is Our Greatest Strength." Is your greatest strength? Uh, again, by Eddie Snipes, and uh, that's my guest tonight is Eddie Snipes. Now, the first chapter states that weakness is your greatest asset. This runs against what is taught in popular culture, uh, even in movies and, and in many churches. How is weakness our greatest asset? Well, I know growing up, I was always taught you have to be strong for God and you have to uh, you know, make the stands for God. And, and while we do make a stand, you know, the Bible says be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And I love how Paul describes it when he says, that he, uh, when he besought God three times, asking God to deliver him from his weakness, and God's answer is, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Then once Paul got that vision, he realized where he's weak is where God's power rests upon him. And if we're making ourselves strong, we're pushing God's power out of the way, and we're trying to live it in our own human strengths. But once you realize there's really nothing that I can do for God, all I can do is let God work through me, and then even our weaknesses becomes opportunities for God to show himself strong in our behalf. Hmm. And in this book, you have um, a lot of chapters, and at the end of those chapters, you have discussion questions, which is, is pretty nice to provide thought, thought-provoking um, you know, uh, thoughts within that person or, or to just um, get a clearer picture maybe of what the chapter was about. But why did you include these uh, discussion questions at the end of each chapter? Well, when I first started writing, I had people ask me for study guides, and I know a lot of books have accompanying study guides with them, but that makes you have to buy another purchase. And uh, so I, what I decided to do is add it as questions because I know a lot of people that I know use it in Bible studies and it gives them questions to direct a Bible study. And sometimes the questions kind of get the theme of what has been taught, but even go a little bit deeper because it makes the goal is to make you think about what you've read and what you think about what you, you, you've studied and to try to get dig deeper because it really isn't teaching you what to think. It's really teaching us how to think and how to study for ourselves and how to listen to God. So those, those study guide questions can be a good asset for that. I don't know if you're familiar with the YouTube channel, Living Waters, Ray Comfort. He he goes out and he witnesses to people. And um, he'll witness to a Mormon or someone of a different religion. And a lot of times they'll get into talking about, um, you know, he'll ask, what do you think uh, gets you into heaven? And they'll say good works, mm-hmm. good deeds, and things like that. And most religions teach that holy living creates holiness. Mm-hmm. Or more specifically, relying on good deeds make you a good person. Even Christianity, you you fall into that, or you see teaching that mm-hmm. comes out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not what Christianity teaches, does it? Well, you know, if you generally speaking, if if it's a popular cultural belief, it's probably wrong. 
Because Jesus almost always was counterculture. That's why he butted heads with the religious people. And if you look at the Bible, it says, so those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Um, so it's, even the Bible even says that whatever is not of faith is sin. And even in, in Isaiah, we're told that even our righteous acts are filthy in God's sight. So there's nothing that human, human effort is a work of the flesh. And Christians can work for thinking that they're doing God a service, but if it's us doing it for God, then God doesn't honor that because God only honors the work of Christ. And the Bible tells us that he works in us to do his will and his good pleasure. So I think there's a temptation in Christianity to make our plans and then try to get God's stamp of approval on it. And we can work on, you know, growing up in church, I've seen people work themselves to the point of burnout. In fact, many years ago, I had a pastor friend come to my house, and he he was pastoring a church that he had been doing about uh, a year and a half or so. And he said, Eddie, I'm just so burnt out, I don't know what to do. And I, so I sat down with him. I said, I got a piece of paper, and I sat down with him, and I said, I want you to write down every task that you're doing in the church. And he listed it as like two pages worth. And I said, now I want you to ask yourself a question. Well, first I asked him, what do you feel like God has called you to do? And he said, to be an encourager and to teach in a discipleship. And so I said, now go through all those tasks and ask yourself two questions. Does it fulfill my calling? And the answer is no. Does it hinder my calling? And almost every one of those tasks were not related to what God had called him to do. So that's just meaningless works. Jesus calls them dead works. So the meaningless works, you know, we think we're working hard for God, but God doesn't call us to do that. And I think we lose sight of Christ when we do that. And when you look at the, the other religions, it's earn your way to God, earn your way to God. But if that was the case, if we could ever earn our way to God, then there'd be no point for Jesus to have died on the cross. So the whole purpose of the law is to show us that we can never be good and we can measure, never measure to God's standard because that drives us to Christ. That's why the Bible says the law is our tutor that drives us to Christ where he, where we find out that it's all of by grace and not by works. That, that's an interesting thought because a lot of, um, when you hear about, uh, my grandfather was a pastor and when you hear a lot about, about, and from a denomination, I don't necessarily agree with everything they, they taught actually, to be honest, but mm. thank God I'm, I'm, I'm saved and, and I'm serving the Lord. So, and I'm saved by grace. But can you make a comparison then when you look at, uh, from what I understand in, in 2020, 2022, uh, pastors are getting divorced, there's affairs going mm-hmm. on. You see this uh, in the news and all over. Is that mm-hmm. directly related to maybe grace not being taught enough? Well, I think it is uh, because if you look at the Bible says that the law stirs up sin. And in fact, if you get into to Romans – the Romans chapter one gives the list of sins, which you know legalists love to point to the uh, the list of sins because you can find one that somebody's doing that you're not doing. But Romans chapter two begins with, "Therefore you're inexcusable, you who judge another or condemn yourself, because you're also guilty of these things." The whole purpose of the law is to show us that we all fall into that somewhere, and because of that. There's nobody who can condemn another person because we're all in, in the same boat and we're all completely dependent upon Christ. And so when they're, you know, the, the problem with legalism 
you know, people people who are legalistic always say that grace is soft on sin, but in reality, legalism is soft on sin because according to grace, whatever is not faith is sin. Pride is a sin. My works, even my good works, Jesus even said, you know, I never knew you. Your works mean nothing. Um, you know, um, you know, the Bible goes through all these different sins, and it shows us that basically there's no way we can escape the 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 curse of sin other than through Christ. And so what legalism does is it makes your sin bigger than my sin so that I feel good about myself. And i give you a perfect example of that is, you know, you've got to keep the Ten Commandments. You've got to keep the Ten Commandments. You hear that a lot. Well, one of the Ten Commandments is the law of the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath holy. And, of course, Sabbath is a Saturday. It's not Sunday. And in reality, the Sabbath is Christ. Jesus made it clear that he is a He's our rest. The word Sabbath means rest. So the purpose of the Sabbath is to teach us to learn how to stop working and rest in Christ, even though that was veiled in the Old Testament. But somebody who wants to keep the law, well, the law of the Sabbath is you can do no work. You can't cook. You can't walk. You can't even play sports. You can't do activities. You get to sit in your house and not move for the entire Sabbath. You can't buy. You can't sell. So even if you go to the gas station, you've broken the Sabbath. So we like to make the Sabbath something we can keep, and we like to make the law something we can keep so that we can make ourselves feel justified. But according to the Bible, if you offend in one area, you're guilty of the entire law. And that's what people don't realize when they try to make themselves right by what they do is it's impossible because once you make the first mistake, you're guilty. You know, how many, how many crimes do you have to commit before you go to jail? One crime, you can be a perfect person and make commit one crime and, and go to jail. Right. So if our legal system is that way, it would not a holy God's legal system be that way. But it's, it's designed to point us to the fact that we receive righteousness as a gift. We can never make ourselves righteous. And it seems like when you do justify yourself by looking at other people's sins, you're sort of um, creating pride within yourself, which is also a sin. Exactly. So exactly. when I was a kid, I, I, I went to churches a lot of times that would um, have sermons that people would call fire and brimstone and uh, mm-hmm. that sort of preaching. And I'm not advocating that necessarily um, mm-hmm. nowadays. But do you think a, a non-Christian, not talking about someone who, who's been mm-hmm. born again, but a non-Christian, should they be shown their weakness or their sin? In other words, can grace alone bring someone to repentance? Or do you think there are certain cases where a person should see that they do not measure up to the law so that they know that salvation comes from a need for grace? What do you think about that? Well, I think you see both. I mean, if you look at, at Jesus, he brought the law in when somebody presented their righteousness. But he brought grace in when somebody recognized they were sinners. So, you know, I had a conversation with a guy once, and he said, he said we minister like Jesus did because he's condemning grace. And I said, well, that's kind of interesting that you would say that because when I look at Jesus' life, the religious people were repelled by him and the sinners were drawn to him. But when I look at the modern church, I see that the religious people are drawn to it, to the organization, and sinners are repelled from it. So that seems the opposite of what Jesus did. And I think it's because it's easy to condemn people, but sometimes people, deep down we all know that, we're, that we have sin. Um, the only, a good example is, uh, you know, in, 
when, when the Bible says, anyone who says that we have not sinned, we make God into a liar, and his word cannot not be within us. So when somebody tries to make themselves righteous for God, that's when God brings the law in. But if you look at how Paul preached, he presented, he said it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. When Jesus showed grace, you know, the woman who was uh, the sinner who came with all the Pharisees around him and washed Jesus' uh, feet with her tears and dried up with her, with her hair, she walked by all these religious leaders and went straight to Jesus. And because he's the only one, all those other people condemning him, condemning her. They were saying, if Jesus was really a prophet, he would know this woman's a sinner. And Jesus is like, not only is she a sinner, but you are too. But, but you don't recognize, you know, she re- receives grace because she recognizes that she's a sinner. So when people recognize the love of God, that's what draws them to Christ. When somebody thinks that they're doing God, uh, that they're, they can elevate themselves to God's level, that's when the law stands up and says, you're either perfect or you're a failure. That, you know, the law doesn't make anyone righteous. The, the law reveals to us that we're not righteous. Absolutely. So obviously from your – and again, your book is Weakness is Your Greatest Strength. Enter the Call to Live in the Transformed Life by Eddie Snipes. Um, I gather from your book then that Christians shouldn't strive for perfection. If not – how can a Christian produce fruit as the Bible describes? Well, there's one passage that, that the Bible uses, I think, says it all. Because there's more, more passages that kind of answer your question. But the Bible says that as we behold the glory of Christ, we are transformed into that same glory by the power of the Spirit within us. So we learn to look to Christ, and the goal is to learn to grow in Christ. And as we grow in Christ, he said, I am the vine and you're the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. So no matter how much we work, we're nothing but dried out branches that can produce nothing. And, he, and the, that's why Jesus compares it to, uh, to fruit. I have yet to see a, a grapevine strain and pop out a, a, a grape. No, it rests in the vine. The life of the vine flows into the branch. And through that life, it begins to flower. It begins to bloom. It bud and it, the grapes are produced by by the patient maturation of resting in the vine. And the same thing is when you look at Galatians, it says the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, goodness, kindness, faith, gentleness, self control. Uh, and against such there's a law. And that against such it means there's no law that that stands against this. There's no law that supports the fruit of the spirit. It comes it's, it's called fruit. It's not called works. Before that, in Galatians 5, works are called the flesh, but the fruit is of the Spirit. So as we learn to grow in Christ, the Spirit of God works in us to begin to produce fruit. So if I need self-control, I rest and learn how to grow in Christ, and self-control begins to um, begins to take uh, root in my life. And it's not me making myself have self-control. It's me one day looking up and saying, this thing used to defeat me no longer has power over me because I've grown in the Spirit, and the Spirit is now giving me power. That's why the Bible says if we live in the Spirit, let's also walk in the Spirit because it's Christ. We are Christ, and he, we have, he has crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Your flesh has been put to death in Christ, and you've been raised as a new creation. We are learning to walk in the new creation and in fact, if you look at Galatians, it says, 
because these things are true, let's not become conceited. Conceited is thinking that we've done something. No, it's all the work of God in us. That's why to the religious, Jesus points to their sin. And to the sinner, Jesus always points to his grace because that's always where the fruit comes from. Yeah. And um, oftentimes I would watch on TV when I was younger certain pastors or I guess more accurately you could say televangelists. And um, mm-hmm. I don't watch a lot of that anymore because of, you know, a lot of disagreements I have with some of the teaching out there. But mm-hmm. televangelists often describe faith, and these would be more of like the word of faith or the name it and claim it preachers that will talk about faith as a force. And this is actually very popular, but um, it's it's mm-hmm. out of context um, what faith really is. But we also know faith in God is important in good times and bad times. So when the Bible talks about faith in the context of the Christian life, not about believing for a Mercedes Benz, in other words, it's important. Mm-hmm. This faith is important for living in the grace of God. Talk about the relationship between faith and grace. Yeah, well, let's talk about faith as a, as a force first because, see, a lot – the Bible is obviously written in Greek, and um, – Sometimes you have to go back to the original language, and a lot of the 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 uh, errors in doctrine is because we're looking at the English and not understand there's a difference. Because just like the word hell, the word hell in the Bible is three different Greek words. You have to know which one they're talking about, or, or else you get this misconception of what hell is. Uh, same with faith. There's two words used for faith. In Hebrews one. Uh, 11, 1 and 2, it says faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Well, they say, so someone who looks at that and says, ah, faith is a substance. But that word substance there comes from the word, a Greek word, um, I, I, I'm going to slaughter this word, I know, but it's hupotasis, which means the underpinning or the foundation. It's what holds up uh, our hope. Yet it, the, the other word used for substance comes in Luke chapter 8, where the Bible says that people provided for Jesus out of their substance. And that word substance comes from a completely different Greek word, which means goods, possessions, or substance. Same word, but they have completely different meanings. So if someone who's not a good student of the Bible would look at that and say, so people like to shoehorn their beliefs into their doctrine instead of taking their doctrine from the scriptures. Uh, So but when you look at the true concept of faith, faith is simply trusting God. Like I had a discussion several years ago, and this, this guy was really um, into Christian philosophy and all this, these big, big thinkers, and he was explaining how faith is complicated. It's so deep, it's so hard to understand that nobody can really comprehend it, and he went on and on about all these philosophical things. And I said, um, well, when I read the Bible – it says, Abraham believed God, and his faith was accounted to him for righteousness. That doesn't sound complicated. In fact, even Paul said, I'm afraid that someone could bewitch you from the simplicity of the gospel. Once it starts getting complicated and having formulas, then you're probably not in the gospel anymore. It's supposed to be simple for us to understand. There's deep things of God, but they are based on the simplicity of, of the Bible's teaching. So, so faith is trusting in the completed work of Christ and believing him to his, believe in his word. And I think one of the great examples of that in our history 
is uh, George Mueller, and I'll have to use him as an example. In the 1800s, he got a calling of God. He saw these orphans, because you know, he was in England in the 1800s, and all these orphan children were everywhere, and nobody was taking care of him. Uh, and so he decided to start an orphanage. He felt called to do that. But when he started his ministry, and he told somebody this, he said, my, my ministry is not to reach the orphans. My ministry is to show that God's word can be, can be trusted. And so he went through his entire ministry and never once asked for a penny because he said it's God's responsibility to provide for me. And he never asked anybody for money, yet in the end he ended up having 2,500 orphans and built five big housing dorms for all these orphans, fed them, and he never once lacked. But there was one instance where they had no food, they had no money, and the kids were ready for dinner, and they had nothing to eat. And the, of course, everybody's in a panic. And George Mueller said, you know what, that's not, our, that's not our problem. That's God's problem. He said, have the kids thank God for his provision. And literally, while they're praying and thanking God for provision, the door knocks. And a truck has broken down that has food on it that's going to spoil. And I said, this is going to go to waste. Can your orphanage use this? So while they think the crisis is going, God's already done the works. And he, he has this appointment in time that, that he's going to bring his revelation to us. And it's that way throughout life. I, the only reason why we don't really see God work in our lives is we turn our back on him before we can ever see that revision. Because our natural human effort, our human reaction is when we don't see the answer, we want to take hold of it instead of resting and saying, God has already got the answer. Now, God will, will wait and sometimes until we think it's too late because he's going to see if he trusts us or if we trust him. But, um, but grace and faith, grace is God has already supplied and faith is trusting in that supply. And you mentioned Hebrews 11.1, 1, which was, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And that's mm-hmm. out of context, even in the fact that Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter. And I would even say mm-hmm. the, the last part of in Hebrews 10 is also talking about faith. And mm-hmm. nowhere is mm-hmm. that about believing for, you know, wealth or believing for cars or things like that. So it, it, it's not even, they're not even taking that passage within the context of that chapter. Yeah, and now, if you look at Hebrews, Hebrews is comparing Christ to everything else, the law, human effort. It's all about Christ has replaced what we lack. Yeah. Now, Eddie, um, one of the things that I find interesting is all through the Bible, it's talking about grace and the law. And um, one of the examples that I, I think is in your book, but it, it also just occurred to me too, is um, Peter. Didn't wasn't Peter kind mm-hmm. of using his 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 uh, good good deeds or his good works when he basically said to Jesus, "Well, I would never deny you," and yet he he did mm-hmm. deny he did deny Jesus three times. Now Jesus didn't uh, didn't give him a backhanded slap the next time he saw him. Uh, so was that a, a kind of a message of grace? Well, actually, if you look at it, that's really a good picture of the grace law versus grace. Peter's like, my efforts, I love, in fact, he said, I love you more than them all. Even if they all deny you, I will never deny you. I can, I will fight for you. I'll stand for you. I will, I will love you to the end. And, and Jesus is like, you're not even going to stand on the, on the, uh, 
through this night. Of course, Peter didn't believe that, but Peter was confident in his ability. And then what happened? He got um, uh, he tried to cut off the servant of the high priest's ear, human effort, trying to do God's work. And Jesus rebuked him, healed the servant who got his ear cut off, and then Peter's whole world came unglued. And then he's he's in a um, he follows Jesus to the uh, to the trial, and Jesus already told him he's going to deny him three times. Well, Jesus, Peter couldn't even stand before a servant girl who kept saying, "You're with him." And then a soldier comes up and says, "Did I see you in the garden?" Well, now Peter knows he's in big trouble because he tried to kill the high priest's servant. Um, so he denied him again. I never knew that man. In fact, at one point, he even calls down curses upon himself. So that's like saying, may God strike me dead if I know who, who, who this, this Jesus person. And then when the, when the rooster crowed, then he, his whole world came in glued, and he realized, you know, I failed him. But what he didn't realize is he had to get broken before he was ever going to be usable. So if you look at it before that incident, Peter always stood up and said, I can do it, I can do it. It's me. I can. I had the strength. After that, Peter never once relied on himself. He always pointed to Christ, and I think that's what with the difference between uh, someone who lives out their faith and someone who lives who tries to create their faith. As long as we're relying on ourselves, we really aren't usable to God. Once we realize there's nothing I can do, even standing is standing strong. It's got to come from the Lord because I don't have the strength to do that. Even have the disciples hiding in the upper room, and they're, you know, the, the very people that Jesus, that Peter denied him, denied Jesus in front of. Forty days later, when the Holy Spirit was a, uh, gave him the power to preach, he was preaching to the very people he was afraid of. So, the power comes from the Spirit working through us. It is never from us working for the Spirit or for God, because human effort means nothing to God. Well said. And when you talk about grace, a lot of times people will confront you with, particularly Christians, they'll say, um, well, what about somebody who's actively murdering people? Or what about a, a, a rapist who's still, you know, doing that, committing that horrible act? Or someone who's committing some horrible sin constantly? Um, how do you answer that? Well, in order to sin... Well, first of all, if you're not in Christ, you're acting in the flesh. And if you, and if you really think about it, you, just like – and I'm not justifying them, but if you look at like serial killers, they all have this tormented childhood. And it makes you realize, what would, what would I be like if I was raised in that person, that person's environment where I was sexually abused and I was beaten? And, you know, we, we all are the product of our, of our circumstances until God comes in and transforms it. Because the Bible says – we died with Christ. We were buried. That life is now, the act of baptism is a picture of us dying to the flesh in our old life and raising up as a new creation. And then we have a new spirit. The Bible says he puts a new spirit within us. And at that point, we're, we're a new creation. We're not the same person anymore. But when it comes to sin, the only way I can really sin if I'm a Christian is I have to take my eyes off of Christ and turn it to sin. So, so you're not going to be actively sinning if you're seeking if you're seeking Christ, but yeah. But if you think about it, Moses was a murderer. David committed mm-hmm. murder. Uh, Peter tried to commit murder, and um, you know. And we're we're and the Bible says we're anybody who's, who's broken even a, one ear of the law is guilty of the whole law. So 
God, some of the, the greatest people God used in the Bible started off in that position where they were they were worthless to God, but God took them, turned their lives around, and put them. As, as I, I love the way that Psalmist says that He took me out of the mary clay and set me high upon the rock, and the rock, of course, is, is a picture of Christ. So, you know, is anything too too hard for God? You know, God can transform any mm-hmm. life. What about prior to the law in the Old Testament? Were people under grace? Um, yeah, under uh, Abraham. You know, if you look at if you look at how the Bible is broken up, you have grace, the law, and then grace again. Um, Abraham was not under the law. Um, the the because the, Bible, the Abraham is a picture of the Christian life that he believed mm-hmm. God and God accounted his faith for righteousness. So Abraham was blessed because he believed God. And even when you look at the Old Testament, when God was making his covenant with Abraham, you know, he had to, he got, you remember the story where he was going to give Abraham his covenant. And he said, go and prepare the sacrifice, which could be the animals, the doves, the sheep, the rams, um, uh, and, the, and the heifers. Prepare the sacrifice. And Abraham prepared the sacrifice. And if you look at the Old Testament sacrifice, the animal is divided in two. And when someone's, two people are going to make a covenant, they'd walk in between the pieces and swear an oath to each other. And the oath is, it'll be like, my life will be like an animal if I break this oath. Well, when you look at uh, the time where God was making the covenant, he did not allow Abraham to walk through the pieces. He prepared the sacrifice, but then he put Abraham to sleep and let him see it in a vision. And God appeared as a torch in an oven, which is a picture of, of God in Christ walking through the pieces and swearing a covenant that Abraham would now become the beneficiary out of faith. And that was very important because the Bible says God secured the, the covenant through God in Christ. And it, and this, this is significant because if the covenant was between God and Abraham, if they were the guarantee, Abraham was a guarantee, the first time he sinned or any of his descendants sinned, the covenant is now broken and judgment would fall. So God didn't allow him to become the guarantee. It was God in Christ. And then you see the same thing forward to the New Testament. Man prepared the sacrifice of Christ, but the covenant was, was sealed by the blood of Christ between God and the Son, not between us and God. That way, if I can't break that covenant because it's sealed by Christ's blood between, between God and Christ. So no matter what I do, I can't break that covenant. And that's significant. So even as far as like the Old Testament, you can see that God protects man we enter the covenant by faith, but we cannot break that covenant because it's, mm-hmm. it's a secure covenant. Yeah. So if there was grace and, now, and then there was law and then there was grace again, if a church wants to go back into the law, does that create more sin? Well, according to the Bible, sin comes by the law and the strength of sin is the law. In fact, the Bible says that the law um, – uh, excites sin in in the in the flesh. In fact, I like the way that that Corinthians puts it. Corinthians says, "Excuse me, I had a cough." Corinthians says that the that the law written on on covenant uh, on uh, tablets of stone um, is the, is the uh, the ministry uh, the ministry of death, but Christ is the ministry of righteousness. So the law ministers death, and that was the purpose of the law, is to condemn us to death so we die with Christ to the, 
through faith in the cross, and we're raised in a new life. So even Hebrews said, you know, you, you hear about the unpardonable sin a lot. Well, the unpardonable right. sin is not possible. Uh, the unpardonable sin is, is talking about Christians who had discovered Christ were being, were being tempted to go back under the law system. And the Bible says, you know, the, the whole book of Hebrews is talking about how the law and the, and the blood sacrifice could never take away sin, but Christ could. And if you go back under the law, there's no more um, there's no more confidence but a fearful expectation of judgment because that's what the law does is it creates judgment. And the answer is get out of the law and turn back to Christ. The law was never even written to the church. It's written to the Jewish people. But it was to point them to the fact that it was really to point them to their sin. So if the strength of sin is the law, why would we want to strengthen sin? Well, the Bible says we're transformed into Christ's likeness as we behold his glory. Well, what happens if we're also, we spend all our time beholding sin? We can never behold his glory, so we're beholding the thing that's going to drag us down. Right. And the people who tend to want to remain in the law, you, you see in the New Testament as Sadducees and Pharisees, pe- basically people who justify their, themselves and you know see everyone mm-hmm. else as the, as the sinners, as you say, and how Jesus attracted those people that, they look down on. Mm-hmm. So now, yeah, your book, and even Paul. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say even even Paul, when he wrote the Galatian church, who who went back, tried to go back under the law. He said, "Who bewitched you that you should no longer obey the truth, because Christ has been evidently crucified among you." <laughs> Excuse me. So they were trying to obey the law, and the Bible said that they were not obeying the truth. So there goes back to what we said earlier. The works of the flesh, the Bible counts as sin, even if we're trying to do it, even if it's a religious flesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, the book is Weakness is Your Greatest Strength by Eddie Snipes. Uh, I recommend this book. I hope people go out and get it, and uh, I think it's going to be beneficial. It's beneficial for all of us. Eddie, you talk about in your book, so I'm going to phrase what you talked about as a question. Is it a sin to fear and doubt? No, no. It's uh, it, I think it's a sin to put our trust in, in fear and doubt. But even in the Bible, you see Nehemiah when he was trying to uh, get God, he felt God's call to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and the temple. He was he was captive and uh, uh, in a he was there was an exile and he was a captive under another king, and when the king asked him why he was sad. Nehemiah said, I was greatly afraid, so I prayed to the God in heaven. So even though he's afraid, he prayed to God, he put his trust in God, and he stepped out in faith and asked his petition, and the impossible happened. A king that had defeated his old nation gave him the power to go back and rebuild the nation he just defeated, uh, or the, his, the previous king had defeated. That's unheard of, but he didn't let fear stop him, but he fears his human emotion. And even King David, he wrote most of the Psalms. He said, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. So that's fear does not have to become a sin. It's disbelieving what God has said that's sin. It's letting fear rule our lives and take us away from trusting God. That's a sin. But everybody, you, can't, you, can't, uh, you can't get rid of human emotions. You're going to be afraid, and there's going to be times of doubt. Yeah. 
Again, another part of your book, um, how important is it to not lose sight of love as a foundational truth? Mm. Yeah. In fact, that's, that's one of the things that you see that's, that the church struggles with. It's easy to beat somebody to death with the scriptures. But uh, in First Corinthians chapter 13, it ends with, and now these things remain, faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And the reason is love is a foundation that everything is built upon. The Bible says God is love. Now, back in my early days when I did not understand scriptures as much, I used to say, well, God is love, but he's also judgment. The Bible never says God is judgment. The Bible says God is love. Uh, the Bible says God is light. But it doesn't say he's wrath. It doesn't say he's judgment. Now, he has wrath. But even wrath has a purpose of of establishing uh, or is of rooting out the things that are hurting his people. That's what wrath is about. But everything God does is on the love of his people. And when it comes to us, Jesus said, everyone will know you're my disciples because of your love for one another. That's why the world doesn't see the church as unified because this denomination is bigger than this denomination. And inside the church, people are fighting because if we lose sight of love, and when it says love, it's not agape love. It's God's love. The Bible says the love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So it's not human love. It's his love. And if we lose that foundation, then it begin, we begin to drift into human effort. We begin to drift into my way. But love, if you look at Corinthians, love is always outward focused. It's always giving. It's always sacrificing. It always puts others above themselves. And if you look at Revelation, when the churches, he, Jesus talks about this one of his churches, and he says, you do all these works, you have, perse- you have persevered, you have patience, you have labored for my name's sake, but I have this against you because you've lost your first love. So even though they did all these works, they didn't have the love of God, and so therefore their works were nothing but a human effort at that point. It even says, repent quickly or I will come and fight against you. So doing good works is not evidence of love. Love is always focused on Christ and focused on on others. And it's interesting, when you really understand the love of God and you look at the sinner, you feel pity because you realize that's me without God's love empowering me. But when you're legalistic, you're like, you can do the sin instead of realizing that we're all in the same boat. God rescued me from that, and God wants to rescue this person as well. Love makes us reach down and pull somebody out of the pit, whereas legalism shakes your finger into the pit. I want to read a passage from your book because it's something that I've said before, and uh, you you have a suggestion to say something else. And uh, it's on page 97, and you said, this is why it's time to stop saying, I'm a sinner saved by grace, and start saying, I was a sinner, but have been transformed by grace. When the Apostle Peter mm-hmm. was questioning God about receiving unclean things, God said, what God has cleansed, you must not call unclean. Can you expand mm-hmm. on that idea? Yeah, well, John, the Bible talks about when we talk about not being a sinner, we're talking about we're a new creation. The Bible says that God put His seed, which is our new nature, took our. You know, you look at it, and is as far back as Ezekiel, the Bible says that I will take the old heart of stone out of you and put into it you a tender heart, and I put my spirit within you, so that you will do my will and and. And you, and you look at that that um, 
I've lost my train of thought now. What was your question? <laughs> oh, about um, saying well, well, I, I'm a sinner saved by grace as opposed to saying oh, yeah. I was oh, yeah. a sinner. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I got, I got excited about about Ezekiel. I forgot what I was talking about. Um, so, so John says we have that new spirit within us, and we're now a child of God. And the Bible says the child of God cannot sin because he's been born of God. Now, we look at that and we think, but I do sin. Well, Paul said it best. He said, he said, what I want to do, I can't do. But what I, what I will to do, uh, will not to do, that's what I'm doing. He said, because flesh wars against my mind trying to bring you back into captivity to sin. Sin is in the body, and it's always warring against our mind trying to bring us back into a mindset of sin because we can't win in that arena. Yet that doesn't change the fact that you're a new creation, born of God, and the Bible says we're seated right now <coughs> on the right hand of Christ. We're seated in heavenly places. Spiritually, we're with Christ at all times. You can't separate yourself from God. Um, you know, I was taught that um, once you sin, you break that fellowship, and until you get your life right, God will never receive you. Well, the Bible does not teach that. In fact, it says in Hebrews that we're to become confidently before the throne of grace and find more grace and help in our time of need, which is when we've blown it. So we always have that relationship with God because we are a once we receive Christ and the Holy Spirit puts in us a new nature, that new nature is born of God and it cannot sin. Our body can still sin, but our nature cannot. So we have to learn to realize that sin is trying to take over our mind. And if we, the Bible says the mindset of the flesh will sin, the mindset of the spirit is his life and peace. So we have to learn that really the battle is in our mind or we focus on Christ or anything else. and But it doesn't change the fact that we've been sanctified in Christ. God says you have been sanctified. You are holy. Now, you may not live holy all the time, but that's where maturity comes in. That's where where we learn to grow in grace because as we learn, you know, when you first become a Christian, your whole life is is focused on your old way of thinking. It takes years to begin to train yourself to look at it from a Christian perspective. And a good example of that is many years ago, this, this lady joined our church, <clears throat> and she was a lady of very ill repute, very attractive woman. And when she got up, came up and got saved, she was dressed like a tramp. And I'm sure a lot of people at church were like appalled at her. But I watched her as she went from dressing sexy to dressing modestly as, as she began to grow in Christ. Her identity was no longer in how I look and having people look at me, but it was in how does God look at me? You know, how am I, how am I reflecting the, the love of God? And I watched her transform over time, and nobody had to beat her down about it. It's just as we grow, sin begins to die away. And it goes back to um, an example that I, I love to use is, you know, when I was four years old, I was tempted to take toys out of the nursery. But you know, as an adult that temptation didn't exist. Why? Because right. Paul, Paul said it best. When I was a child, I thought as a child, I acted as a child, I spoke as a child, but when I became a man or when I, when I matured, I put away those childish things. Well, sin is a, the flesh is a childish way of, of, immature, of a Christian immaturity. But as I learn to grow in my faith, I don't have to make myself quit sinning. Those things begin to lose appeal to me because why would I want to give up 
my relationship with Christ for something that's completely worthless. But it right. doesn't look worthless when, you're, when you're, your mindset is in the sin. Uh, and I'll give you another good example. Is I had a friend who went on a missionary trip to Central America, and his group of people had shanties around a dump, and they lived off the dump. And he said this little girl was walking, and she found a, a doll in the dump, and the hair was full of gunk. It's missing an arm. It's missing a leg. But she thought that was a treasure. Now, if he had came and taken that girl's doll away from her, she would have screamed and cried because he took away her treasure. But if you get her a brand-new American girl doll, fancy, expensive doll, and say, here, I give you this for that, then she would gladly give it up because now something more valuable has come along. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what the Christian life is, is we learn to recognize the treasure that we have, then suddenly what we're holding is like garbage. And that's where sin begins to die is when we realize this is nothing but garbage. Yeah, and that's an interesting train of thought because that woman who dressed provocatively, say, in the first Sunday, she could have easily worn conservative clothes the next Sunday, but that wouldn't have been a heart transformation. It's her heart yeah. transformation that caused the change in clothing, but it was a it was a bigger change because it came from the inside out. Yeah, exactly. Now, when I was younger, one of the things that I was taught and believed is that, um, and this comes from 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So I, I believe mm-hmm. that you should try to confess every sin. And that became an impossible task. For one thing, it was based on what I thought was sin or maybe the really bad sins mm-hmm. or the sins I could remember. So is this a correct interpretation of Scripture? <laughs> no, it's far from it. So, first of all, if you think about the logic of that, that means I have to remember every sin. Now, how many times have I done something and did not even realize I did it, or I forgot right. about it? So, if I it's to be forgiven, I have to confess it. Then there's thousands of sins in my life, maybe hundreds of thousands, that I will never be forgiven of because I don't remember them, or I, or I never recognize that they were sins. And so, it really is an absurd way of looking at it. But if you look at First John, the First John chapter one is written to the Gnostics, people who believe that they they could do something to make themselves righteous, and that's why if you look at John, it says if we say we have no sin, you have no sin, then you're a liar, and you make him a liar. But then you have to confess your, but he who confesses his sin and forsakes them, then he will have forgiveness. So First John one nine is talking to those who are outside of the faith. But what's interesting. If you look at 1 John 2, 1, which is the very next chapter, if you look at 1 John 1, 9, it says if you want to have fellowship with us, this is what you have to do. And if you look at 1 John 2, 1, he starts off with my little children. There's a difference. It's a completely different um, target audience. The first one is if you want to be part of our family, you've got to, you've got to acknowledge Christ. But to, the, to his children, my little children, he's talking about his disciples it's an affectionate discussion. He calls him his children because he, because he helped birth his church. And he says, my little children, write these things that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So it's interesting that to the sinner, he tells them to confess their sin and trust in Christ. But to, to the church, he says, you've got an advocate who's always, who's always proclaiming your righteousness to the Father because – Righteousness is not what I have done for God. Righteousness is God's gift to me. 
as if you look at in Corinthians, in First Corinthians five, it says that um, that He became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We are the righteousness of God. We're not righteous for God. It's God's righteousness, and there's nothing higher than that. So all I can do is try to make myself righteous in place of God, and so once again, now you're substituting trash for God's treasure. So righteousness is always a gift of God, and confessing sin, and you know when we, when we do wrong, it's nothing wrong saying God, I'm sorry I did this. But if, this this is kind of way I, I put it one time when somebody's asking me. I said if I walked up to you and said you did this wrong, and but you know what I forgive you, and then the person said, will you forgive me? I'm like did you not just hear me? I just said I forgive you. So why are you begging me for forgiveness? Because I already told you are forgiven. See, if God, even though his word may expose something that's sinful, God is always saying, but you're forgiven. And if you look at how Paul addressed it, he's like, it's always, when, God address, when Paul addresses sin in the church, it's always, do you not know who you are? Do you not know what you have? It's, almost, it's like you're giving up the treasure for the trash, and it's always put your eyes back on Christ. It's never beg God for forgiveness because the forgiveness has already been given to us. It's now entrusting and acknowledging my righteousness. In fact, you even see, Jesus even said that, that the Holy Spirit convicts us of righteousness. It convicts the world of sin because they do not know me, but it convicts us of righteousness because he is always going to the Father for us. So the Holy Spirit is always going to say, do you not know who you are? Why are you, living, why are you, why are you giving up the eternal treasures of heaven for this trash? So God's always shown us the greatness of who He is and what He's given us. And once you see that, why do you want? You know, why, why would you uh, choose the world once you understand what we really have? The problem is the church doesn't really understand what we have. Hmm. So, uh, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Ultimately, uh, being led by the Spirit is is walking by faith. It's, and it's one of those things. It's interesting because a lot of times you have people say, just tell me what to do. You know, the Bible never just tells us what to do. The law does, but it doesn't show us that we can't do it. Now, I mean, obviously there's some things that we're told to do, like, you know, pray and, and it, it, the things that help us, that teach us how to, how to grow. But ultimately when it comes to walking in the Spirit, God never says, follow these six steps and you'll be walking in the Spirit. No, God just says, focus on Christ. So as we learn to read his word and apply it to our lives, and we learn, you know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the word of God is always revealing to us the truth of what we've given and is calling for us to take our eyes off the world and off of ourselves and put it on Christ. Trust in him when it doesn't make sense. Trust him when it seems impossible. Um, and so walking the spirit is learning how to walk in faith and not by sight. In fact, that's what the Bible says the best, walk by faith and not by sight. And it's hard to do because walking um, walk in the flesh is just taking control. Walking in the spirit is just releasing complete control of God and just, and just trusting him. Um, so it's not really an easy answer. It really is walking in the spirit is learning how to grow into the point where our focus is on Christ and our life is on trust in him. And it's baby steps. You know, I like the way the, the Bible says it. it. says this is how we learn, line upon line, line upon line, 
here a little, there a little. It's kind of like when you learn how to walk. When my kids learn how to walk, when they took one step and fell down, I didn't go and say, you loser, or you blew it. No, I'm like, yay, you gotta, you walk a step, and you praise them, and, and then they take the two steps, and then next you know they're running. Well, for some reason in the church, when somebody's an immature Christian, we, get, we scold them when they fall instead of saying, you, you look how good you, you know, look how far you made it. Don't lose faith. Get up and start walking again. Um, you know, where you're looking is where you're going to end up. Um, and so everything in temptation is always designed to take your eyes off of Christ. Even religion, if it takes your eyes off of Christ and puts them on yourself, a person, it's no different. Religious flesh and, sinful, and, and worldly flesh is still flesh. So walking in the spirit is just learning how to not rely on the flesh and learn how to rely on the spirit and really learn how to grow in Christ. Uh, this hour has gone by really fast, and this is a this is a good point to kind of start wrapping it up. Um, I think we could, we we left things at, at a great um, spot, but I would love to have you back sometime. But I wanted to mention your book again: "Weakness is Your Greatest Strength." Enter the Call to Live in the Transformed Life by Eddie Snipes. And you've also got uh, many other books on grace and uh, t- with titles like Stop Trying to Fix Yourself, Help, I Think I've Committed the Unpardonable Sin, The Revelation of Grace, It is Finished, The Victorious Christian Life, The Promise of a Sound Mind, and Abounding Grace. And again, this book, your latest book, is Weakness is Your Greatest Strength. Again, the author is Eddie Snipes. He's been our guest tonight. Um, I know you can find all of these books on Amazon. Um, is there, mm-hmm. Are there any other places that people can go to find your book, uh, or is that the best place? That's the best place because Amazon will give you the best uh, ability to, you know, they have privileges to give you lower prices, so I, I just go with Amazon. Excellent. Eddie, thank you so much for joining us this week, and I hope you can come back in the near future. Yes, I'd love to. Okay, great. Thank you so much for listening tonight. Um, We'll wrap things up tonight, and we'll be back soon. Um, Check out our Facebook page, The Bruce Collins Show, for more information. Uh, we We are lining up our next guest real soon. But I wanted to, again, thank Eddie Snipes. I always loved talking to Eddie in the past, so I'm glad he could come back and be one of my first guests. And again, we will have him back. Thank you so much for listening tonight. Take care. I will talk to you really soon. 